Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, Matthew 22. Uh, if that book sounds familiar, it should, but we are going to spend all of our time there. Today's uh, passage is going to be a little bit different in that we're going to hit a few different sections of Scripture, but we're going to start here in Matthew 22 and look at the great command. As you know, last week we began talking about new vision for a new day, or, or what is God's plan for our church? How is he leading us? And today we're going to talk specifically about this, our identity and our mission. Our identity and our mission. As we do this, here's kind of where we're headed. Last week we began seeing where does the vision for change come from, and we said it must come from God's Word, empowered by God's Spirit. Today we're going to begin talking about who we are and what we're here to do, and then we're going to talk about kind of what frames how we do that. What are our values and things that inform us? And so over the next several weeks, we're going to take some time to clarify really who we are before the Lord. And so if we were to take a few minutes and try to think through, um, I don't know, different pictures of, of what our church is, and if we were to poll the congregation this morning, I'm sure we'd get several hundred answers in terms of, you know, what our church is or what it is to do or kind of what our vision for our church is. But I'm going to take uh, the risk of kind of overgeneralizing and say there are at least, a, I don't know, a handful of different kind of pictures of church life. For some of us, uh, church is like family, as in our literal family. You know, our parents, uh, our, our, uh, our children, or our siblings, and we're connected to church that way. For others, uh, church may feel more like a civic club. I don't know, something that you belong to and you have friends and you kind of belong to uh, the same group. Others are here maybe for some sort of a corporate worship experience, and, and you kind of rate your feeling each week based on whether you get what you like or what you don't like out of that experience. Uh, still, others may identify strongly with their Sunday school group and a, a particular group within the church or a Bible study group. Or maybe you're passionate about a particular, I don't know, avenue of ministry, a particular type of ministry, and, and the church is almost sort of a ministry hosting site, kind of a, a, a launching point for your ministry. And any of these things are good things. In other words, it's good to desire community. It's good to build relationships with, with other people and particularly other believers. It's good to be invested in and, and involved in ministry. But this morning, I'd like us to raise our sights a, a little bit higher than this. And I'll say a little bit bigger. Not that these things aren't part of what a church is, but they really aren't a picture of a church. In other words, you know, if you're here for a worship experience, you can go to a concert, and you know this, and get a, a better worship experience uh, than we can provide on a Sunday morning. And so if that's what you're looking for, then that may be the high point of your life is, is that concert. But God in his word didn't give us concerts. He gave us the church. And so it's not that those things can't serve a purpose in our lives, but if the church is merely a place where we come to, to hear what we want to hear or be with people we know and like, we might have missed out on the point of what it means to be a church, which is really a place to make disciples of people who know God's Word and help each other grow in God's Word as God has commanded us. And so as a philosophy of leadership, we really want to lead in this way. We want to be clear about who we are. In other words, we want to be committed to a clarity in our identity and our mission. But at the same time, we recognize that God is God, we're not, and so God's Spirit moves in different times and different ways, and as He does that, we want to be flexible in our plans. So there are times, I mean, I'm, I like to create a plan and go with it. And there are other times when God knocks me upside the head and says, hey, you need to slow down here a little bit. You don't have it figured out like you think you have it figured out. But we also want to be transparent in our communication about who we are, unapologetically committed to the Word of God, and yet clear about who we are. So clear identity and mission, flexible plans, and transparent communication. 
Well, if you remember, and you likely don't, so I'll remind you, when we moved here, when our family moved here 13 months ago, I shared with the congregation, okay, what will my priorities as pastor of this congregation be? And the first would be to pray. Pray that God would show up. Pray that God's spirit would work. To pray specifically for members of this church. To pray for this congregation that God's word would shape us. Because if God does not show up, it doesn't matter how hard we work. If God's spirit doesn't go before us, then kind of our effort is in vain. Secondly is to preach the word faithfully. To recognize that ultimately I don't have any authority or gifts or insight that's, that's different than other human beings other than really as we live out the word of God together. So we want to know the word. We want to commit to the word. We want to live it out together. Thirdly is to get to know and love our congregation. To recognize that, that there are stories and individuals and people here, people who need love and need love in particular ways. And how, it, how is it that we understand one another and, and live that out? A fourth, and this is important, is to know the community itself. To know not just our church, but really the community around us. How does that community relate to us? How do we do in terms of reaching that community? And what are our relationships with the people around us like? And fifthly is to build a cohesive leadership team. In other words, a sense of togetherness in how God is leading us. Not like, um, not there's one person or a small group of people, but a sense of unity in how God is at work among our congregation. Well, when I was growing up, I loved... uh, I, my dad was an old Western fan, so I grew up, I don't know, watching Hopalong Cassidy, Roy Rogers, and John Wayne. But in addition to that, I loved reading Louis L'Amour and kind of old West books. And so I've always kind of, I don't know, in my heart, you know, been a cowboy at heart, even though I never lived in the West or really was a cowboy, but I kind of always liked that. But one thing you would read about, if you know that section of, of our nation's history, is that as explorers went West, some of them were miners. And they would mine for copper, silver, gold, you know, the California gold rush, the 49ers. And the important thing, if you had, if you were going to kind of make money in a mining claim, was to stake your claim. In other words, if you got there first, it didn't matter if you were there first, it was who drove their stake in the ground and claimed that with their, their kind of stake number and identified it, registered it, and, and that meant it was your claim. So even if someone else beat you to it, if you registered it first, it was yours. And what we're going to try to do really in this series together is sort of stake out a claim sort of stake out an identity of who we are. You might call it our philosophy of ministry. And so we want to be a people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, equipped with the Word of God, who give the people in our community repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. We're here to touch not just individuals, but our community and impact our community with the gospel of Jesus. In other words, part of our mission is to be a missions-minded church, but that mission starts next door. It starts with a person next to me. And so what we're seeking to do, and our prayer is, that over the next series of years, 50% of the people sitting in this room and worshiping together will be people made up of disciples that we have made. People have come to faith in Christ through our ministry, through our relationships, through the way we've touched their lives and spoken the word of God into their lives. So that half the people here are people who, through our gospel ministry, through our ministry of the word, have come to faith in Jesus. And that happens when one person leads one person to faith in Christ, and that person walks with Jesus, and then you've got a ratio of 1 to 2, 50%. And really, our prayer is that that becomes an ordinary part of what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. And when that happens, we become a church where church isn't church. It feels like an amazing family reunion. Not the one you don't want to go to, but the one everyone wants to be at. 
where people are diverse in culture and background and ethnicity, but they're united in Christ because we're deeply rooted in the word and in, in our relationships with one, each other, one another. The picture that God's word gives us is, is like a picture of a field of grain that's ripe, it's ready to be picked, and we're here and we're enjoying this together. It's not a field full of sour grapes. There are no sour grapes because there are healthy relationships committed in love for each other. We don't hide from each other. We're not anonymous because we know each other as we are known. We're rooted in the word and rooted in these deep, growing relationships. So we, because of that encouragement, share the gospel with our friends, with our neighbors and our coworkers. And so when we gather together, these gatherings are hubs of worship and encouragement to do what God has put us here to do. They are equipping us and empowering us and our motto of front yard missionaries, people who are here within our community, in our places of work, in our places of shopping, in our places of play, in our schools, sharing the gospel. The places where we live, shop, work, and play are places filled with the love and truth of Jesus because we, we are there and we carry that love with us. We don't see missions as something that happens somewhere else. We see ourselves as missionaries, building bridges into people's lives with God's love, rather than seeing ourselves as people kind of huddled together, hoping that we make it through the day. We're here to reach the people around us. Our homes are filled not just with people watching football or eating a meal or hanging out, but people sharing the love of Christ in our homes. And so seeing people come to follow Christ as a part of this body of Christ isn't a pleasant surprise. It's what we become used to. It's because we see God doing this. It's the life-giving, regular experience of our church. And we see the power of God through the conversion of the people of God. And these people that come to faith in Christ, they're part of the family reunion. They're part of that field of grain, that, that, that place where everyone loves being. And so then they share the gospel, and they produce fruit, so that over time, our church family is filled with people who have come to know Jesus through our witness, through our lives, through our loves and the way our love and the way we have impacted the lives of those around us. And then if we do that, we don't have to talk about missions. People who reach people who share the gospel like this have a global vision for missions because it's their lifeblood and they know it's the hope of the nations. And so our message is one that the world needs. We train and multiply believers We train leaders to reach those around us and to reach across the globe. Some of them stay here, and some of them start churches elsewhere. So where does this kind of identity, where does this kind of mission come from? As we saw last week, this kind of identity comes from the people empowered by the Word of God through the Spirit of God. And so this morning, we're going to look at three key passages about how we process this, and we're sort of working from back to front. In In other words, we're going to sort of start at mission and work our way back to identity. And so we're going to read now Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Those two commandments should sound fairly familiar to you because we just heard them read a little bit ago by Shelley Stinson from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. If you were to ask someone this morning, really, how were you to summarize God's word, you might say that the great commandment is to worship and love God with all of our heart. 
If you were trying to summarize the Bible in a sentence or two, Jesus has just given us a way to do that. In Matthew 22, a lawyer asks Jesus a question to test him. Now, Mark tells us that this lawyer is also a scribe. So this lawyer is particularly trained in this area of law, and he's asking Jesus a trap question. There are 613 commandments, and he's saying, which of these is the greatest? Now, this is a common debate. The word scribes would get together all the time and debate which is the great commandment of all. But Jesus, because he's God, has more than a step on this scribe, and he knows the answer before it's even asked him. And so this is a common debate, and yet Jesus is prepared for this moment. He boils the entire Old Testament down to two primary responsibilities. Love God with all your heart, with your entire being, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you can do these two things, and you can live out life as God intends, he says, love God wholeheartedly. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This particular command is quoted every day by committed Jews. It's one that everyone knows. It's no surprise. They all know this by memory. And so Jesus says there's this vertical relationship. There's this dimension in which knowing God is the most important thing that any of us can do. Jesus hits there first. The greatest measure of our love for God is our wholehearted commitment to love and worship God in all of our life, to recognize that there's no part of my life that Jesus has, doesn't have a right to. He's got a right over every area of my life. When Jesus says, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, he's speaking in a way that shows we must love God with all that we are and all that we have. There are no exceptions to this. In other words, there's no area of life in which I can say, that one's mine. Jesus, you can't have that one. I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep that one back. In other words, the life of a true follower of Jesus ought to look the same on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, as it does on Sunday. The activities we do might be different, but the, but the, but the posture of our hearts is the same. It's worshiping and loving God with our whole being. So do our lives as believers look like everyone else's life, or do they look like people marked by this kind of love? Loving God with our whole life, does this characterize us? Secondly, Jesus says that you do this, you love each other sacrificially. He quotes from Leviticus chapter 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now what Jesus does here is brilliant. Now today we're kind of used to this, love God, love others. But to this point, no one had ever done this. They have all of these arguments about the great commandments, and then Jesus links these two. So rabbis, quote, love God. Rabbis, quote, love your neighbor, but no one ever connected the two. In other words, what Jesus says is, you know that this vertical dimension is here. You know that you are loving God if you love your neighbor sacrificially, if you love the people around you. Verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God and love others. Well, the the apostle John wrote John's gospel he wrote the book of Revelation, but he also wrote uh, three little, smaller kind of epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Well, the first of those, 1st John, addresses a question. And the question is, is how can you know if you are a child of God? Not how can you know God, but how can you know if you know God? And in, this, in his book, in his letter, he kind of gives us three tests, three ways that we can know this. The first of these is what, uh, what sometimes is called the truth test. In other words, do you believe the truth about Jesus? Do you confess that Jesus is Lord and trust him and him alone for salvation? If you do, that's one sign that you're a child of God. A second test is what is sometimes called the moral test. In other words, 
Do we walk in the light as he is in the light? Do we live in a way that shows that Jesus is our king? If we do that, that's another way that God gives us evidence in our hearts that that Jesus is our savior. The third test he gives us is this test. It's what's sometimes called the love test. In other words, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? In 1 John 4, John digs down into this test and he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. John doesn't really mess around. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if God the judge were to show up and assess our love for God by our love for one another, what would his verdict be? Now there's no doubt that within our community of faith here, within our church, there are remarkable examples of sacrificial love. But if you have kids or siblings or friends or a spouse, you know that the test of love isn't whether you love when it's easy. The true test of sacrificial love is when you love when it's hard, when it's difficult to love. The test of true love is when we choose to love someone when they're unlovable. The test of true love is when we love someone when it's hard for us to love that person, when that person is the person we most want to resent in the world when it costs us to love. And so the truth is, when a body of Christ is marked by members who hold grudges that resent other members, if you don't love your brother whom you see, John says, you cannot love God whom you have not seen. Pretty clear. But there's a part of this that's kind of scary. Let's go back to Jesus' summary of the law here in Matthew 22. He says, love God and love others kind of a cool summary of the law, but there's a part of it that's deadly too. Let's look at Jesus' words. Love God with how much of your heart? All. How much of your soul? All. How much of your mind? All. How much of your strength? All, 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 all. And each of these alls, if your heart is like my heart, is like a nail in the coffin of our souls. God requires perfect devotion of every area of our lives. To keep the law, all you have to do is always love God perfectly. To break the law, all you have to do is fail. And then Jesus goes a step further. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jews, Jews were, uh, they kind of knew the danger here, and so they interpreted this command as applying only to good Jews. In other words, I'm only going to love the people that are easy to love, and then I'm pretty good. But do you remember the story that Jesus told to confront them about this, the story of the good Samaritan? Now, they didn't believe Samaritans could be good. But Jesus said the Samaritan is the good one, and the priest and Levi who pass on the other side, they're, they're the bad ones. Even the people we most despise, everyone, Jesus says, is my neighbor. So I must love the person I'm most tempted to despise sacrificially. Love God, love others. It sounds great as a church slogan, or I don't know, maybe a blurb on social media, but it's terrible as a standard against which we are judged. Loving God is my life's mission, it's my greatest desire, and yet there's not a single day of my almost 14,000 days of life in which I have done this perfectly. There's not a single day in which I've loved others perfectly as I've loved myself. Love God? Fail. Love others? Fail. Yet in all the ways that we fail, Jesus succeeded perfectly. 1 John 4, the place where he talks about if you, if you hate your brother, you can't love God, he also says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Jesus never failed in loving God and never once failed to love his neighbor perfectly so that in all the ways we have failed, Jesus succeeded. All the times we have failed to love, Jesus loved perfectly. And if you turn from your sin and you place your faith in Jesus this way, John says you can live through him. You cannot fulfill God's mission for your life if you do not know God by faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning without Christ, would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus? This is God's great command. So let's move from this great commandment to God's mission for us, the great commission. Turn over to Matthew chapter 28 now, Matthew 28. We'll read verses 16 through 20. This is at the very end of Jesus' time on earth. Matthew 28, 16, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If there's any text that Baptist church, churches love, it's this one, isn't it? I mean, you may or may not know that kind of another officially accepted name for Southern Baptist churches is Great Commission Baptist Churches because we identify with this mission, being a missionary people. Uh, this week, one of our members, uh, Patty Schaefer, drew my attention to uh, uh, a remark in the SBC Life, a magazine from the Southern Baptist Convention, a great commission people with a great commandment heart. So in other words, if we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, what is the most loving thing we can do for our neighbor? Share the message of God's love through Jesus. Jesus says here that the core of this commission is to make disciples. He says, as you go, make disciples by baptizing and by teaching them what I have taught you. So discipleship is, is, is kind of a word. Sometimes it's Christianese or it's a word we throw around and people don't know what it is. But it's just this. It's following Jesus and encouraging other people to follow him too. So it's, it's helping people just take one step closer to Jesus, one step closer to the cross. And this is the best way that we can live out the second great commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves. So you might think of it this way. As you think through the flow of Scripture, you might say to truly love our neighbor is to lead that neighbor, and by this I don't mean the person who lives next door, I mean the people within our spheres of influence, to lead that person step by step closer to Jesus. That is love. Because Jesus is the one, not I, but Jesus is the one who can truly help this person. If I'm going to truly love that neighbor, I've got to lead him to Jesus. Making disciples is at the core of what a church does. You can boil all of life down to a bunch of things, but really down to two words, worship and discipleship. And worship is the point of discipleship. God created Adam and Eve as perfect worshipers, and in the Garden of Eden they worshiped God perfectly until the world was broken by their sin. And when they sinned, they broke the perfect relationship between the Creator and creation itself. Well, then God sent Jesus into the world to restore this broken relationship. And in John chapter 4, John tells us about a story where, where Jesus himself connects discipleship and worship. In John chapter 4, Jesus comes across a woman, and it's a woman, and we know her as the woman at the well. Jesus meets her, and he has, starts a conversation with her and asks her for a drink. And they begin to have this conversation, and, and then Jesus knows everything about her. 
He knows that she's not been married once or twice, but she's been married five times, and now she's living with someone who is not her husband. And she can't believe that this man knows everything about her. But then she has this conversation. She's a Samaritan woman, an immoral woman. And Jesus says the Father is seeking people to worship him. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, to be a disciple means to engage in true worship of God. So when Jesus says in Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations, he's calling us to a mission of global disciple making to call people to worship him. We help people follow Jesus because God's name is the only name worth praising. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby anyone can be saved. The discipleship of people here is something we all do. In other words, it's not something that a a few people that we pay to do it or a few gifted people or a few impassioned people. It's something we all own. That's why we're not here just for a worship experience or for personal encouragement or to kind of come together. We are here to help someone else take a step closer to Jesus. We lead people to the cross. We do this for each other, and we also want to do this for the people around us who overflow in this ministry of discipleship to give people in our community repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus. So if we're here to worship God and make disciples, how do we do this? Or what is our identity? What's kind of the DNA that makes this up? Well, keep turning your Bibles. Let's go over to Acts chapter 1 now. Acts chapter 1. So we've seen the great command, love God, love others. We've seen the Great Commission, go make disciples, and now we're going to see how it is that this is fulfilled. And really, it's fulfilled through the local church. We see this in Acts 1, verse 8. Acts 1, 8. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Acts marks the beginning of the last 2,000 years of church growth. Where did the church growth movement start? It started there. Jesus gives this great promise, and it's building on the Great Commission. The promise is that the Spirit will come upon you. You'll have power to do what I've called you to do. And so in Acts chapter 1, the Spirit comes at Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches, and in a single day, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Now, this is an exciting day in the life of a church, but if you've been around churches that have experienced rapid growth, you know that this is also a big problem. Where do you put all these people? How do you deal with all these people? How do you train all these people? How do you teach them what it means to walk with Jesus? And the church immediately gets messy. How do you organize this number of people? But soon persecution comes and it scatters those believers and they spread throughout the known world. And then the church recognizes, and by Acts chapter chapter 13, they're recognizing that they need to intentionally send people up. Paul, Barnabas, Silas, John Mark, Luke, others are going out as missionaries. And what is it that these missionaries do? Acts is the story of the early church. They establish churches. They fulfill their mission by establishing local churches. The essence of a healthy local church is a church that establishes, strengthens, and builds other local churches. So we make disciples through the local church in our Jerusalem, in our region, Judea, and in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In other words, we exist to be a local church committed to Christ-centered worship and life-on-life discipleship as we grow believers, leaders, and churches. 
This is why it's not enough to just come together to hear music that we like. It's why it's not enough to come together to sort of be a ministry hosting or ministry launching site. These are good things. But the church is to be a vibrant, growing body of believers who embrace our mission of making disciples for the sake of calling people to worship the true God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Well, how do we do this? We do this by believers training believers, growing believers one-to-one. We do this by raising up leaders, asking God to raise up pastors, deacons, missionaries, people who will serve here in the ministries of this church, leaders to, to carry on the ministry of the church. Some of those people stay here and serve this church, but some of them we say goodbye to. Some of them we see and we send out as God sends those people as the church did to Antioch. And we reproduce churches. It's not something that, that our denomination does. It's not something our association does. It's something that we do. And we do it in partnership with other churches. And it's really here, and don't miss this, that I think is the most kind of essential mind shift in what we're doing. We must get back to understanding what a church is to be and what a church is to do. In other words, a healthy doctrine of the church is that God has called us to make disciples for the sake of his name by reproducing and establishing other local churches. And so here's what we're going to be walking through in the coming weeks. Christ-centered worship. In other words, what is worship? What has God called us to do? When we gather for worship, what are we here to do? Why are we here? Secondly is life-on-life discipleship. So if worship is kind of why we do this, discipleship, how do we call people to follow the name of Jesus? And then we do this with a commitment to the sufficiency of God's word, that God's word is enough. The gospel-centered nature of God's word, that the life-changing power of the gospel, Romans 16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. This happens through the power of the Spirit of God. God's Spirit shapes us and changes us. It's not merely human words. It's the Word of God empowered by the Spirit of God. And that God calls us to a mission that is ultimately global. What he says here is to the ends of the earth. So our identity is that we are a reproducing, multiplying, growing local church, growing believers, growing leaders, and growing churches. And our mission is to make disciples who worship God in those local churches. We do this here and we do it around the world. So as we walk through the coming weeks, we're going to see what God calls us to and how it is that he shapes us into his image as we call other people to this mission as well. Let's take a moment now and we'll, we will respond to God's word in repentance and faith. And as we do this, let's pray right now that God would make us a vibrant, growing Christ-centered, disciple-making, mission-fulfilling body of Christ. Let's talk to God now. I'll give you a moment to talk to God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer.